0: Okay, so it's time for another chat here with uh, one of our fine books of the year uh, conversations. Matt's in place. I think he's in a slightly... I uh, can actually see what you look like, Matt, as opposed to... Yeah, it's amazing,
1: isn't it? And, and and the loft is... Uh, yeah, that's where I am. So I've, I've decided to change location, given that the last time we did this, my Wi-Fi cut out. So, you know. <laughs> there you go. As it has just done. As soon as you started speaking... Oh, really? Picking, oh, you're kidding. The picture... Oh.
0: The picture disappeared, and John Boyne, who's sitting there in his uh, in his luxury apartment, is thinking, well, I can see Simon Matt, as ever, disappearing because the picture quality is so rubbish. Anyway, <laughs> uh, all that matters is we can hear John Boyne, who hopefully is feeling very patient and at one with the world. Hello, John.
2: Hi, Simon. Good to talk to you again. How are you, sir? I'm very well. I'm very well. Um, you know, it's been 18 months sitting in this house, but uh, I'm feeling good. Have you found it? Um, and I don't know.
0: I speak to um, or, you know authors on this podcast with Matt and uh, actors and directors on the film podcast that I do, and some creative people, for want of a better word, have found it um, okay. Really, being alone with themselves and coming up with ideas, and some have found it a real struggle. Where are you on that sliding
2: scale? I think I've mostly found it okay. Um, certainly at the start, I felt uh, it was. It was almost a relief to get a break, you know, from all the, like, the traveling that goes at book tours and festivals and so on that I'd been sort of doing for about 20 years and... It was quite nice to just be at home and be able to read and be able to write and not have anything on the schedule. I think as time went on, you get a little bit lonelier. And, um, you know, now that the festivals are starting to kick back in, I'm really looking forward to being, you know, with readers again and being on a stage again and talking about books again. It's uh, it's uh, The last time was in Adelaide in March of 2020. And I can remember reading about COVID while I was there and thinking, this seems to be turning into something, but not really thinking it was going to turn into something. Um, and, you know, that was 18, must be what, 15, 16 months ago. Yeah. I
0: And I had a book out last summer and obviously like all the other books, <laughs> the one thing that you can't do is meet other uh, readers. You can't go to the book festivals and that's and that's really, it is a really strange thing. Can you, do you think you'll be happy meet sitting in front of a desk with a long queue of people from, all over, all wanting to come and have a selfie with you and to say hi. Do you, you think we're back in that kind of normal? How does it feel for you?
2: For me, yeah. I'm completely happy with it. I've got my vaccinations um, and I, you know, I'm not, I've always felt along the way that I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, so whatever they tell me I can do, I will do. Um, and if they say it's safe to do that, then, then I'm happy to do it. As, as long as people are um, asking for signatures or selfies and not sort of uh, coming up to punch me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> which after reading this book, who
0: knows? (laughs) I have to to say, I mean, obviously we're edging into the territory for The Echo Chamber, which is your book. The fact that you're not a qualified doctor or epidemiologist doesn't mean a thing, mate. You can still pronounce on everything, regardless Uh of whether you have any qualifications for it. Just go ahead, knock yourself
2: out. Well, that's true. People do it all the time, and apparently are all experts. And what, what I find funny is the way that we, you know, I'm sure you do it. I do it like with friends, where I say, "So, what did you get? Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson?" And they tell you, and you go, "Oh, right, okay." And really, I, I, haven't, I haven't even a clue why I asked that question, or what, you know, what the what the answer is supposed to mean to me, because I, I don't yeah, really well, know.
0: I'm now in a, I'm in a mixed marriage. I'm I'm Pfizer, and my other half is AstraZeneca. You know, so it's
2: okay. I was, was Moderna. Right.
0: Oh, real are Moderna. Were. Okay, Matt, so, what are you?
1: I'm uh, the, yeah, I'm AstraZeneca, and so, and so is my wife, as they say in Life and Brian.
0: Well, um, anyway, so we've edged into social media, and we've edged into expertise, and so we're we're into The Echo Chamber, which is the new book from John Boyne, and fingers crossed. Matt, just describe the cover, please.
1: Okay, here's hoping. I'll keep it, I'll keep it tight. Uh, so um, the, the, the cover is sort of split um the background between sort of three colours. You've got red on the bottom and then uh blue and green uh on the top. Uh, but dominating it is the picture of a tortoise with an iPhone strapped to its back. Uh, and that's going to be the image that jumps out to you from the from the book sounds. And then obviously uh out uh, picked out in white uh, the echo chamber. We all make mistakes, don't we? And John Boyne's name. Name at the bottom
0: so john the uh, the last time you were on the uh, on this pod it was for my brother's name is jessica and in a uh, and uh, and if people didn't hear that they can go back to where they got this podcast and they can maybe they should listen to that podcast first <laughs> as a kind of a primer for where because even though the stories aren't connected they kind of are just tell us um how you ended up with the echo chamber and why you wrote it and what the connection is with the my brother's name is jessica
2: Yeah, I've never actually written a sequel to any of my books, but in some weird way, uh, one could possibly describe this as such. Um, As you mentioned, I wrote My Brother's Name is Jessica a few years ago, and it was a a young adult novel um, about a, a trans teenager and narrated by her younger brother. Uh, Over the course of a summer and the younger brother is very confused and um, upset and concerned about what's going on with um, the person he's always believed to be his brother and is now uh, his sister. And I published this book, you know, hoping that it was, you know, a work of compassion and empathy and um, understanding towards trans teenagers and from the moment it came out, well, actually, from, the mo- from about a week or two before it came out, uh, it became a bit of a, um, a subject on Twitter, particularly, with a lot of criticism going towards the book uh, for various reasons. Most of the critics seemed to be saying that not only had they not read the book, but they wouldn't read the book, but it was still terrible. And sometimes those opinions v- varied from because I'm not a trans person, so I shouldn't be writing the book as if one should only write one's own experiences, or because the trans character was not the central character of the novel. Which, in my opinion, was that uh, you know I felt it was more appropriate for me to write from the perspective of the the younger brother who is looking at the experience. Uh, the reality is, had I written it from the perspective of the trans character, I would have got c- um, criticized for that as well. So you know, you can't win um, in such situations. And gender politics seems to be one which is very uh, dominant on Twitter and on social media. And I came out of the experience feeling a bit beaten up, to be honest, because in the all the years before that, in publishing novels, you know, I, I'd had novels that were you know, more popular, less popular, whatever, but I'd never really been the, the focus of so much anger or, um, you know, antipathy from people. And the um, uh, the way that complete strangers would sort of define your character online and say, you are this, you are a bigot, you are a transphobe, even though the book was supportive of trans people, so it didn't make huge amounts of sense. But I came away, as I say, feeling a bit um, beaten up by it. But then as time went on, asking myself, A, why do people feel the need to attack others online in that way? And why did it upset me so much that when it happened? So, you know, I would respond to people defending my work. And you have the right to defend your work. But um, you know, is it is it worthwhile defending your work against people who are just deliberately um misunderstanding it or not even reading it? So I wanted to understand for myself the uh, the the mindset behind that. And I think if you're a writer, um, you know, as, as, as we are, then you, you, you try to understand it by writing a novel about it. So I came to it that way saying, okay, I'm going to write a novel about social media, about what, like, why are we obsessed with it? Why do people use it? What do they get from it? Particularly when they're using it in negative ways. Okay. So then, um, so we now then
0: arrive at the Cleverly family, what an extraordinary uh, creation of uh, people you've you've come up with here. We have uh, George and Beverly, who are the parents, Nelson, Elizabeth, and Achilles, the children. Can you just do a kind of a, a little kind of pen portrait, a little kind of intro into the five cleverlies that we have here?
2: Yep, George is uh, sixty years old, and he has worked for the BBC for decades. And, uh, you will have some experience of that, of course. Um, and has interviewed everybody who's worth interviewing. So, um, Beverly, Beverly Cleverly is a romantic novelist who hires ghost writers to, to write her books for her. Uh, Nelson, the oldest child is somebody who is very, um, socially awkward and he can only feel confident when wearing uniforms of jobs that he doesn't actually, uh, do, such as a, a police constable or a, or a doctor um elizabeth the central daughter the middle child is a social media troll all she's interested in is getting as many likes and followers as possible and she trolls famous people including her own father and including at one point herself and achilles (laughs) the youngest is uh, basically just a sort of a 17 year old brat who is uh very good looking and uses gay social media sites to con Older men into going out for dates with them and then blackmailing them, so they're all a little bit um, yes over the top, a little bit eccentric, and not always very likable.
0: No, that's true. I mean, occasionally it reminded me of Succession. You know, I don't know if you've have you watched yeah, Succession? I love Succession? Love it. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Roy family, Logan Kendall, and Robbie, mean, you think that you think they're all messed up. Well, you wait till you meet uh, the clever <laughs> Just, uh, just on the subject of George and then Mac and uh, and then Madsen. Uh, so George is working for the BBC. Could you have set this in Ireland?
2: Why was this a London book? Um, I I always find that like london or new york are the point two kind of universal places that if you set something in like dublin or paris or rome it has to be very specific to them whereas london i think can be kind of just universal to everybody and i know london better than new york so i i often choose london um for that reason as a as a a setting for the book if the particular setting is not so important cool okay matt Um,
1: I I love this book, John, and that won't come as any massive surprise given I've I've loved uh, so many of the other books that you've talked about when we've done this podcast and when when we were at Radio 2 previously as well. And and the first thing to say is that it's so funny. And I will say again, when we've had... When we've had writers on with books that are funny, I I make a point of saying, and that should be enough. Because often you find people say, "Yeah, the book's so funny, and it's also this, and it's also that." No, a book being funny is already clearing a bar that most supposedly funny books don't get close to clearing. So it, you know, the, the fact that it's funny is enough. The reason why it particularly chimed with me is I'm um, so um I, as I've already mentioned, I'm up in my loft at the moment, but um. Uh, Downstairs, there is a picture. My wife um, bought me a a sort of framed cartoon uh, a couple of years ago, and this cartoon's from like the Victorian age and uh basically it's um it's it's titled as london club men parading for practice in writing to the paper in other words the they're, they're literally queuing up in their club to be able to write a letter because they're so offended by something that they've re- that, that they've read in the paper and it is this seeking out offense that um that we we obviously we see so much on social media but it, but I suppose the question that, that throws itself at me here is, is this not something that has always been there? Social media sort of exacerbates it, but there has always been this sort of latent desperation for relevance. I need to be relevant, therefore I'm going to seek out offence uh, and and find myself offended and find myself insulted so that I am relevant.
2: Yeah, Um I do think that a lot of people uh, go onto social media hoping to have that voice that they have felt that is missing out in their lives. That they they look at people on the radio or on television or in the papers and ask why are they um, why are, why do they have a platform when I don't? And originally, I think when social media was set up, particularly when Twitter was set up, uh, it, it 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 had a lot of benefits to it. It it, um, it amplified the voices of people who had been historically disenfranchised. It put everybody on the same level, effectively, whether you were the President of the United States or, um, you know, a a 16-year-old kid in school. And all you had to do, in a way, was be interesting. And then people would, you know, maybe come to you and and listen to you. But I think in time as well that a lot of people decided to find their, their one subject and just pound away at it you know day after day after day um to an unhealthy extent so whether that would be um you know in the case of uh where this book starts gender politics or you know it could be anything it could be climate change it could be you know what donald trump was doing for all those years you know do, you know putting forward quite a an unpleasant uh, unpleasant ideologies and so on and um and just kind of sticking to that and becoming a voice within um a, a movement about something but I think you have to ask yourself whether that is real activism. And I'm not always sure that it is. You know, I, I always thought, like, when you look at something like, um, the Black Lives Matter movement and you saw people kind of marching across bridges and toppling statues into, into water, that seems to me to be actual activism. Uh, it's people actually doing things, going out on the street. Uh, whereas sitting at home on your, in your sofa, on your sofa and like, tweeting away on your phone about something is it's uh, sometimes it feels like it's very performative that it's 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 about just getting people to react to you but you're not actually i mean you're not getting out of the house you're not really doing very much uh so i don't know how useful um that can be i had an image john of you writing
0: this book and rubbing your hands with glee as as you went from page as you went from page to page, and having an absolute blast writing it, um, I would quite like to see the unedited manuscript one day, just to see how much uh, your esteemed editor said. Um, Are you sure about this bit in particular, uh, John? But I certainly had an image of you. I, I mean, catharsis is maybe a ridiculous word to use, but that you were having an
2: absolute ball writing this book. Uh, I did. I did have fun writing it and I did have to um, reel myself in from time to time. And you mentioned my editor, you know, your editor, <laughs> the same Bill, um, who, you know, one day I will show you if you like. And there was a lot of tone it down, tone it down <laughs> <you> know, on <laughs> certain pages. Um, I think I had a lot of monologues at one point in it, you know, where people were just maybe four or five pages just ranting at the world. And, and Bill would say, you know, like, you've made your point. You can make it in one paragraph. You don't need five pages for it. Um, but I did, I mean, I, I had fun writing it mostly because as well, I said to myself at the start, uh, to pick up on what Matt was saying, that I wanted it to be funny. You know, I wanted to have as many jokes in it as possible. I felt if it, if it wasn't funny, it would just seem like me being, uh, very thin-skinned or um, snarky about things, and that I, I had to have a sense of humor about this in order to, to write about it. I couldn't just feel that George was a terribly misunderstood man who, you know, life went um, more tragic for rather than comedic for. And you know you've read a lot of my books, I know from, from our past discussions, and i don't write things which are funny that often they my books tend to be quite sad at times and quite emotional, and um to completely change gear and try to get as many jokes in as possible um it was it's It's just good for the creative mind, I think, as much as anything else what
0: uh, can you i don't, you, you might not want to say this John but what can you say in the book what the tipping point is? what is it that just because it does refer specifically to our previous section of the conversation about your last but what is it that George, the father um, of this family, what is it that he does which causes such offence and which causes everything to unravel?
2: Well, it's, it's only the first thing that he does because it, it's, it's then, it then, you know, becomes, you know, a whole spiral of unravelings. But it, it begins really with him having a conversation in his solicitor's office with his solicitor's secretary. And he's always being accustomed to meeting this young man, Aiden, uh, behind that desk and they've chatted many times over the years because, you know, George seems to get himself into enough trouble that he's often in his solicitor's office. And um, the secretary behind the desk, a young woman called Nadia, um, tells George that Aidan never existed. And uh, George is dumbfounded by this, and he can't quite understand it because he's met this fellow so many times. Then later, his uh, solicitor informs him that that, in fact, uh, that the secretary, Nadia, which is Aiden reversed. Um, Aiden has transitioned into being Nadia. And George didn't realize this. He didn't, you know, he just hadn't recognized it. You know, it just wasn't uh, something he he he'd particularly known. Um, and when he comes out, he sort of says it to the secretary and he says, you know, rather than making me feel stupid and making me feel like, you know, I'm just I'm old and daft, you know, you could have just told me. We've always got along quite well. Is there any reason why, you know, it feels to me that, you know, because I'm this. 60 year old white man working for the BBC. Um, you're assuming that I'm going to have some kind of prejudice towards you when I don't. And so, you know, they have this conversation, but when he goes out, he tweets, um, a tweet of support for, uh, the secretary, but, but without thinking, he tweets it for Aiden rather than Nadia. He means well. His, um, his, his support is actually well intentioned, but by misnaming or dead-naming, I believe the word is, um, Nadia as Aiden, the forces of the internet come together and decide that he is the worst human being that's ever existed. Right.
0: And is, and uh, again, this just maybe tax, taps into your own experience, is the thing that he does, that's even worse than that, is he replies and responds and gets into
2: a dialogue with his critics. Yeah. And, and that is the... Ultimate mistake. There's no point doing that, and that's a mistake that I made back in the the Jessica days. Um, and you know, you do have a right to defend your work. And if you, if people are really saying some terrible things about you, it's very hard not to feel that I, you know, I I, I need to respond here. I need to say, look, the 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 cartoon character that you're creating for me online, there is no representation um, or, to me at all, other than sharing a name. But there's there's just nothing to be gained by it. They they want to argue with you. They want to get your attention. Um, they want you to be angry with them, like they're angry actually not with you with themselves with the world um and you're just the the, the focus of their anger on the, this particular day so eventually i got to the point where i thought you know I, I just you can't answer these people anymore it's just it's it's pointless and it was only causing me stress in my life because you know you might send a couple of replies and then you wake up the next morning and you think oh my god you know what's going to be waiting for me when i when i open this app is it going to be a whole stream of abuse and I would generally be quite polite with people. I wouldn't, be, I would never be like rude or anything towards people. But you do get, um, occasional people, and I had one in particular, who just become quite obsessive and stalky and, um, frightening then at times as well. And, um, if they have, if they use that voice often enough on the internet, well, um, you know, if somebody says, you know, every day for, you know, a year and a half, I, you know, I know that Simon Mayo eats kittens and, you know, roasts them on his, his, his pizza rather than eats them. You know, <laughs> you know, if somebody says this three, four times a day for 15 months, well, people start to believe it. And it's, um it's unfair and I'm not in any way suggesting Simon that you eat kittens but um, <laughs> but you know if I said it every day yes. somebody might listen to and me and then the headline yeah.
0: would be Simon denies that he eats kittens denies yeah exactly
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Right, Matt yeah. So, no, well, there are t- it's always struck me there are two elements to the, to to social media being being a concern, and and you've John, you've you've already mentioned one being the sort of the interaction element of it. But if we take the sort of the the, the premise of the book, being that that George um, tweets out something that is clumsy, um, and you know, as you say, right at the start of the book, we all make mistakes. The difference with social media as opposed to us all making mistakes 30 years ago was when you made a mistake 30 years ago, that was it. You made the mistake and you, and maybe people pulled you up for it and, and, and that was that. But with social media, it is always there. Unless you delete that tweet and delete that post and, by the way... You know, plenty of people choose to, you know, screenshot everything that you uh, that you will post. And therefore, it's not going to disappear. It's always going to be there. And that that has become, you know, when I talked to, um, uh, in sort of previous life, I would talk to um, athletes about how they deal with social media. And I was constantly saying to them, if you decide in the heat of competition, after you're really disappointed about something that you've, you know, about the the way you've competed you decide to go on social media, it is only, only going to end badly because your emotions are running and the next day you may regret what you've written, but it is always, always going to be there. And that's what people have to deal with now that they didn't have to deal with before social media. In other words, it's an aspect of social media that... that that wasn't there previously. And, you know, we all did silly things, you know, in our teens or 20s, but at least those things haven't been preserved for for, for, forever.
2: Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is there's no room for nuance at all on social media, and especially on like 280 characters. Um, there's no point trying to be witty or sarcastic or ironic in some way. Everything is taken out of context. And people who have, uh, for whatever reason, taken against you are always looking for that one thing that you post, which will they will say will define you. Now, the reality is if you were to follow me around all day from you know the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed and just kind of record me, I'm going to say twenty stupid things, um, at least, you know, and, and that will just be before I have my breakfast, probably. And <laughs> but you know, those stupid things are are not necessarily things that have to define your character. They're just like a you know a stupid joke or a whatever it is. But as you say, Matt, because it's it's um, it's memorialized there, and people will screenshot it, and it will sort of people will think this is what defines you and it's a it's a very it's a very silly way to look at people, I think
0: There's a line in the book, John, I forget who says it, but it refers to Twitter as a place you can go to be awful, and I wonder if you think that Twitter is particularly at Well, it's particularly to blame, you know, and that's where Donald Trump was banned from first, I think. But there is something specifically about Twitter,
2: which is awful. I I think there is. Now, it's the one I have the most experience of because I wasn't on Facebook and um, or Snapchat or Instagram or anything like that. So it's the one I have the most experience of. I think there is a reason that Donald Trump chose it as his platform of choice Um, and you know, it, it does get to uh, out there to a lot of people. And um it feels like the most political of the social network platforms. Facebook was always, I think, about sort of connecting with friends in a way. Instagram always seemed to be sort of a kind place where you just sort of posted nice pictures of, you know, being on holiday or, you know, a nice Pizza that you're eating, uh, or kitten for that matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but t- Twitter seems to be more engaged with, or people who have something more political to say, and political arguments. I mean, they're never going to end well, anyway. Really, if you know, if, especially if it's done online, it's, as opposed to say, you know, two friends sitting in a pub talking about, you know, back in the back in the good old days when people talked about Brexit, for example, two friends <laughs> talking about it in a pub would probably have a very different conversation than two people talking about it online. Because I think we forget people's humanity online. We forget people's, um, that most people are basically kind and decent and uh, they may have a different opinion to you on, 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 a, on a, any particular subject. But it doesn't mean that they are the devil incarnate. Um, so yeah, I, I do find that, that Twitter is the, worst. also, I think on Twitter, there's so many fake accounts and people feel, um, emboldened by, you know, just making up a name, putting a sort of an anime display picture. I I personally feel that, you know, it would be better if everybody had to sign up for, anybody who signed up for an account had to do it with their actual real details, like, you know, passport or something to, so that you actually had to stand by the things that you you say i mean like when i look back and you know if i'm responding to somebody who isn't a real like has a st- stupid name and a stupid picture has zero followers and you know follows two people and i'm getting into de- a debate with them I mean, what you i have to ask myself why am i wasting my time you know as opposed to if sort of uh, if um i don't know like a a Nobel Prize-winning writer was to tweet me or something, at least I'd be engaged with somebody um, who is in my my uh, sort of industry. But, you know, responding to people in with, with fake profiles seems a bit pointless. So I think it would be a healthier environment uh, if, by the nature of it, you had to really stand by your words. And you're off Twitter at the moment, John. I, I was trying mm-hmm. to find you on
0: Twitter because I was posting how much I was enjoying the book and so on. And I was trying to at you and then yeah. realized that you weren't there. So is, is that all part of this process? The fact you're not. I, on- I felt
2: just uh, as. I, I went off for just about two or three weeks before the, the book is coming out and I'll stay off for about four or five weeks after. It's just kind of like a couple of months break. Um, it feels like a sensible detox when a book comes out, because I, I felt particularly with this book and with the themes of this book that, well, two things I thought, you know, that I, I would potentially have a lot of people shouting at me again, which, you know, I don't really want to wake up to. And also it, it did seem a little bit silly for me to be, you know, ranting on about how awful social media is and then tweeting about it. So um, I thought I'll take a few months off um, and then in a couple of months' time, I'll just see how I feel. Maybe I'll... Because, I mean, there are positives to it. Like, I'm not saying it's all terrible. I mean, one of the things that I generally use Twitter for um, is uh, like what you just described. You know, you're reading a book and you say, I really like this book. And actually, I think that's, um, that goes further these days than a quote on the front of a jacket. Um, I think if you, if you just, if you're reading something that you really enjoy and you say why, and it's, um, an unsolicited, um, quote as such, I think that that reaches a lot more readers and it's, it does better for writers and publishers and so on. So I enjoy, I mean, they are the parts that I enjoy on Twitter, um, connecting with writers, connecting with readers and um, being able to talk about books that I like, which is for the most part what I do. Um, and I think that's, um, a healthy way to use it. I do. I I have a sort of
1: theory about um, social media. So, the only social media I'm on is, or the only one I use regularly, is Twitter. I've never been on Facebook. Um, and that is, so, we tend to forget, when, when Twitter first started out, uh, and certainly for the first couple of years, I know, Simon, you were on Twitter well before I was on Twitter, and... As it when it first started out, it was bluntly a lot of um, celebrities, and there was what I would call the Stephen Fry and lift years, which was you know Stephen Fry, I'm stuck in a lift, and the lift's not going anywhere, um, and I'm tweeting out to my followers, and and you know what can we do in this lift while we're stuck here, and he was getting all these fun things coming into him. Can you imagine that now? celebrity stuck in a lift, what should I do? Basically, Twitter is going to be alive with people saying, throw yourself down the shaft, I've had enough of you in your lift. And so and so, so, so Twitter went from this be, being this place where everyone was like, oh, I, I can now, I can contact, you know, Stephen Fry, Simon Mayo, I can talk to them, whereas I wouldn't have been able to do it before. And to begin with, it was all great. It's like being this sort of massive marquee where the first people in the marquee are all very polite, and then this other wave of people come in who've all had a beer and uh, have decided, you know what, it's all a little bit saccharine in here. I'm going to say what I think, and I'm going to tell these celebrities exactly what I think of them uh, because that's you know that that, that that's going to be my thing. And so then, as I say, Twitter got a little bit sort of you know uh, dodgy. So everyone started saying, right, I'm now going to Instagram where it's much nicer, and Instagram was nicer for a couple of years. And then everyone talked about how, you know, people keep sliding into my DMs on Instagram and saying really unpleasant things. This is a long-winded way of me saying there is something at the heart of social media which means it's going to turn. As much as, as, much as we, you know, it might start off with the most noble of aims and, um, and I, I would agree with you, John, with this idea of, you know, everyone has to, you know, give a sort of snapshot of your passport, that kind of thing. I can't believe that Zuckerberg or, you know, Jack at, uh, at Twitter, that they set off with the idea, I'm going to create this social media monster. I think there were noble aims at the start of it, but when you add that, that, the algorithm of social media to the algorithm of human beings, it's just going to turn, and it's always going to turn at some point
2: yeah i I agree that there were noble aims, and I think there are still noble aims on it at times, and many people use it in positive ways, but as you say, there are controversialists, people who um will will maybe try to build a media profile um, and they, they don't even half the time believe the things they're saying themselves. they're just saying things just to get attention, and you know just to kind of you know to sort of I know she's not on it anymore, but the sort of Katie Hopkins type people of the world who see this is the way I can make a career is by just being nasty and every so often something tragic happens you know we saw it when when Caroline Flack died something tragic happens and everybody says we now need to kind of be more considerate of each other uh, or hashtag be kind um, on social media and it seems to last for about two hours Mm -hmm. and um, uh, before before it all changes I, I remember like it's a I mean, it's it's an awful thing to say, but it's the truth. I remember when Caroline Flack died, re- seeing a very prominent um, UK uh, broadcaster saying how awful it was, how, you know, this should never be allowed to happen again. Um, she was too young, that, you know, the abuse. And then 20 minutes later, tweeting another tweet um, about Jane Fonda and criticizing her for having work done on her face and for having, you know, political opinions within 20 minutes. And, you know, you think, do you not see it? Do you not see that, like, one minute, you, you're looking for likes by saying it's terrible, and then you're slagging off an 80-year-old woman um, for no reason. Um, the, the the disconnect there, um, Piers Morgan, was, uh, was huge. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah I, and
0: I think a lot of people listening John will be will be nodding thinking yep this is exactly what I was thinking and that anonymity point I remember talking to Mark Kermode who uh I do the film show with uh, on Five Lives also the film critic for the Observer and he was looking at the you know b- below the line comments and I kept on telling him to stop because oh, yeah. because it doesn't matter how erudite the publication is as soon as you go to the below-the-line comments, it's rancid. You know, it's absolutely terrible. And I'm sure your suggestion of anonymity um, would help. I can't see it's going to happen anytime soon, though.
2: And also the thing is, you could read 100 comments about your film show, for example, and 99 of them could say very nice things. And it's that one comment that says something horrible that sticks with you. And that, you know, you could just be having a bad day. You could be, you know, you could be in a bad mood, you could be feeling ill, there could be something going on in your life. And that one comment that somebody sends just to be mean can really destroy your day or or push you in all sorts of un- unhealthy directions. Right at the beginning of the conversation, John, you you said that you, were, you wanted to explore <clears throat>
0: social media. And one of the things that you wanted to explore in this book is why you had been so upset by the reaction to the jessica book did you come to any i mean apart from the obvious did you come to any conclusions about why you were particularly traumatized in the way
2: you were i did and i think it comes down to bullying and i think when i was in school i was not a very confident child um i wasn't particularly bullied i have to say i was more sort of one of those that isn't particularly noticed But I look back at my school days as being, um, you know, years of being sort of heightened anxiety every day, you know, keeping always on edge in case something was to happen or I was to say the wrong thing or, you know, catch the wrong person's eye and something traumatic could happen. And I felt very much that the um, social media experience was about bullying. And no matter whether you're a 12 year old or a 90 year old, um, bullying can is, is an appalling thing and can really, really affect a person. And uh, I, I guess it took me back to feeling like that. And do, where do you go from here, John? Do you, have, have you got this
0: out of, have you, having rubbed your hands with glee and, uh, and enjoyed yourself creating this monster um, family? Do we, what do we get from you next? I'm sure
2: you have at least half a dozen projects on the go. Um, I am, yeah, I, I, I do have it out of my system that's that's true i've I've you know that's my last sort of social media um commentary um, so yeah, I'm working on the next book as I always am, and I was working on it there you know this morning before uh, we started talking and um I tried to get into screenwriting during during lockdown, and I've done a bit of that. Uh, and haven't yet got something, you know, commissioned. Um, so it could be a complete failure on my part. But at least, uh, you know, I just decided to try something different. And um, I turned 50. So I wanted to kind of set myself a new challenge. And uh, I got commissioned to adapt someone else's novel for a feature. So we're, we'll see, does that come to something? And I've quite enjoyed that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, lots of projects on the go. and But mostly the same kind of, you know, always just working on the new book. I still feel as excited about new books as I ever did. Uh, John Boynton, it's always a pleasure. Thank you
0: very much indeed for talking to us today. Thanks, Simon.